an astrophotograph is not like a point and shoot and be done with it kind of endeavor. It's something that there's a lot of work that goes into an astrophotograph. And to me, to see that work wasted as a bunch of pixels somewhere on the internet with no data correlated to them, they would just, you know, get forgotten after a while. It was just like a waste. It was inadmissible. So I had to figure out a way to uh, organize this data. And then, you know, the rest is history. Salvatore Levine is our guest today. He's the founder and creator of astrobin.com, a website dedicated to astrophotographers whose goal is to capture all of the data and equipment that was used to create a given image in the night sky. And Salvatore talks with us about his website, the creation, how to use it, and so much more. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Sal, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. We are extremely excited to have you. And I've got a, a fellow astrophotographer here who is as deeply committed to doing this all the time as I am. I love, I love these conversations. So thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And so you are the creator of the now very famous Astrobin. How yes. did how did that like how did you start that project? And did you have any idea it would get to this point? Um so I didn't have any idea it would get, you know, to the point where it did get. But uh as to how it got started. So um myself I've always been into astronomy since I was a little kid. But when I was a little kid, of course, I didn't have the budget to get myself like an astrophotography equipment. But I got uh, my parents got me a telescope when I was 13 or 14. Uh, it was the um, classic Newtonian telescope, um, 114 millimeters yeah. with a focal length of 900 millimeters that have, everybody has had. And um, yeah. seriously, we've heard that so many times. You're exactly right. Everybody yeah. has had it. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. was my first go to. Yeah. Yeah. And my story is that I would just lug it up and down the stairs to get to the roof of my building. And it was in a very light polluted area. But, um, you know, everybody has their um, wow moments sometimes when they observe something and that kind of gets you hooked. And mm -hmm. I think for me, it was probably Jupiter because it was too light polluted to see anything like, you know, even the, the Orion Nebula was just the tiniest smudge in that telescope. But Jupiter was pretty good, right? So I remember that. And that kind of got me hooked. And since then, I've been like on and off interested, right? Uh, but then when I was older, uh, I got I had the budget to, to start doing astrophotography. And I was like, you know, why not? Why not um, rekindle my old interest? So I started. And um, I had this problem that uh, as a noob, basically, I, I had no idea what to expect from my equipment. And I was like, you know, I want to image this galaxy or this nebula. And I have no idea if what I'm getting as a result is something to be expected, you know, to be expected. Or is it like a mm -hmm. poor result or am I doing really great? So um, what I did is that I went on Google and I searched stuff like um, M81 Galaxy um and then the name of the telescope and the name of of the dslr that i was using to try and get like a, a benchmark right and then what i thought what i found is that uh when you get on google and do that the search the search results that you get are people on forums discussing things and what do people on forums having their signature on the forums they have their equipment and that would like skew <laughs> all the search results, right? And so you can really get what you wanted. And then I started to realize that um, as an engineer, you know, and a sort of like um, self-professed uh, data nerd, I wanted to get like all this data that was around on the internet. I wanted to get it sorted out. Um, I figured that an mm -hmm. astrophotograph is not like a point and shoot 
and be done with it kind of endeavor. It's something that there's a lot of work that goes into an astrophotograph. And to me, to see that work wasted as a bunch of pixels somewhere on the internet with no data correlated to them, mm -hmm. they would just, you know, get forgotten after, after a while. It was just like a waste. It was inadmissible. So I had to figure out a way to uh, organize this data. And then, you know, the rest is history. What do you mean with, by wasted data? What, what, do, what do you mean? The, the parts of the image that doesn't make it in the final copy? Uh, no. Or what do you mean wasted? Uh, I mean the data associated with the image, like the equipment used and all the processing uh, details of the image. Like, you know, uh, uh, an astrophotograph can be like can have a very complex process. Oh, behind. I see. Okay. Like I, so the, I, the I, metadata is what you mean. Then. The metadata, the, metadata. the acquisition yeah. details, especially things sure. like how many hours of integration time did you have? Uh, how were they split? Like, did you have 10, 10 minute subs or did you have 100 one minute subs? Did you do dark frames? Did you do bias frames? Did you do flat frames? And all of that stuff that goes with an astrophotograph. And if yeah. you if you just share the image as is with no data, it's like it's got no context. And if it's if it's on a forum or in a, right. on a, a general purpose image hosting site, like you know, there's there's a, gal, a bazillion of them outside out there. Um, if it's just there, just the image, then it's like lost after a couple of days. Everybody's seen your post. It goes, you know, down in the history, and and then it's gone. I mean, it needs to be searchable. Uh, I think um, one of the one of the reasons why I think that Astrobin has been successful in that is that I quite recently uh, went to look at my um, um, data backend for the image, and I ran um, a query to figure out um, if the new images, if the recent images get pulled out in the search results and they get shown to people, to viewers, more often than the old, less recent images? And the answer is no. You upload an image on Astrobin 10 years ago, it still gets pulled out all the time. I can't optimize uh, my storage for cost saving by saying, okay, you know, the really old images, they can go on like... Um, um, a, a data storage that is optimized for storage and not from for bandwidth. So I would save some money in storage mm -hmm. that way, but I can't because they get pulled up all the time, which means it's working. All that data is not lost. Well, that's the magic of Astrobin though, right? Is that, as you kind of mentioned, you want that context of the data, especially if you're you're brand new to the hobby, you have to set some kind of expectation for yourself to to know, one, where you are. It, you know, as far as image quality and what's achievable, but also, you know, where you're trying to get with the equipment you have. If you can say, I use an FSQ 106 and I want to see what's the best images ever taken with the FSQ 106. So I know what to strive for and to try to beat even, you know, to push myself. You can even get the wrong context if you're just searching through forums, because then, like you said, in their signatures, what it's going to pull to Google that information it, it might say FSQ 106 along with 12 other telescopes that person owns and have nothing directly linked to the image you're seeing to an FSQ 106. It could be the exactly. wrong context. But with your site, you can literally search and it looks like it was built by a data scientist. But the way it's, you know, searchable that way, it's like, yeah, I can go in there, type in my equipment and see what other people have already done with the equipment or equipment that I'm interested in to really validate that interest or even tell me if this is a road I want to go down. And I think that's the power of it is that it is searchable in that way and it gives you accurate context. And I think that's what separates it from everything else out that, that really exists in that manner. And, and that's what makes it so wonderful other than, you know, of course, the fact that the images can be, you know, in full res, um, you know, or at least not compressed like what Instagram or Facebook is going to do. People complain all the time, like, oh, I took this wonderful image and then Instagram destroyed it <laughs> you know, yeah. and showed it to everybody destroyed. But so that's that's interesting that that's how it started, because that's really the foundation of what makes it so great. Yeah, I believe that, you know, um, innovation is always driven by problems. You mm -hmm. bump into a problem. If you had the right mindset, I was there at the right place, at the right time, with the right skill set, and I wanted to solve that problem. And then I got lucky, and people jumped on it, and it worked out great. And that's how people mostly use the website to, to do searches. 
Do you think it's better for, you know, people and, and maybe you have this through the data that you see on, um, you know, new users, but do you think it's better for the true beginner or is it more utilized by people that have been in the hobby for a while and are really trying to, you know, push themselves to the next level? Who do you see mostly interacting with your website? Um, I think it's both. Uh, the actual beginners, they use it more uh, as a source to consume uh, the material in there, to do their searches, to figure out what to buy, uh, what to buy next. And to f- the same way that, you know, why I needed to make something like that to, to figure out if they were if what they're doing were right, to have a benchmark for their equipment. Um, I, I think that there's a little bit of a... Um, What's the word I'm blanking here? Um, kind of like a wall. Like there's a lot of people who think, um, you know, the bar is very high on Astrobean, and uh, I don't want to put my images in there because they're so poor. Uh, it's so much that I had to put in the FAQ section. You know, uh, Astrobean is not just for professional or very advanced amateurs. It it should be for everybody. That that's what I strive for. But um, yeah, the word I was looking for is intimidated. Uh, lots of people are intimidated by the fact yeah. that there's the mm-hmm. quality is so high, right? So I think that it serves both ends of the spectrum that way. Which is which is really one of the one of the top problems that. Um, you know, we are constantly trying to tackle is just to show that this hobby is accessible and that it's not something that you have to be a professional. You don't have to go to grad school to be successful in. And going to your your site, you actually see a lot of people that have, they're not in any way affiliated with, you know, um, like a professional university or, um, you know, company that's in the astronomy industry, but it's just true hobbyists, people that have a nine to five and come home and they want to get the telescope out and they are incredible. I mean, they're taking images much, much better than anything I've ever taken. And telescopes is all I do every day, you know, but it's something that it like, like any hobby you can truly become great at if you're just committed and, you know, passionate about it. And it's a way for people to see, to kind of like, reach in to other people's passion within this hobby and kind of explore that and explore their journey through it because you can see their progression through the years because you are saving Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. And speaking of accessibility, I think that also astrophotography has a bit of a stigma about, you know, that it's an expensive hobby. I don't think it has to be that way. I mean, it can mm-hmm. be, it can certainly be expensive. But, <laughs> but, but you see like, you, you see memes on the internet about, you know, that it's so expensive and so on, but it doesn't have to be. I see images all the time on Astrobin that are made with cheap equipment on the cheaper end of, of, of things. Mm-hmm. And they're amazing. You see this all the time. And I think maybe this could be really correlated to the fact that, you know, astrophotography has a very... Um, Sometimes it could have a steep learning curve. So it means that you have a lot of room to squeeze so much out of the equipment that you have that you can do like really good, uh, you can achieve really good results even with cheap equipment. Yeah. And and I think that it's a hobby, you know, you can spend whatever you want to spend on it. It's no like, look at anything. People, people can say the same things about, you know, really any hobby out there. They can be golf. It can be, you know, cars. It's like, like, look at cars, for instance, you have the people that buy the fixer upper and they have a blast doing it and they spend a thousand dollars on their car. Cause the whole point is to tinker and go out there. Mm-hmm. And then you, you can obviously go out and buy the Lamborghini if you want, and you can be into it to whatever degree you want to be. Astronomy is no different. You don't have to go out and buy a million dollar telescope. You can, if that's where you're at, that's what you want to do. But we see more people that get in. I mean, honestly, we see more people now buying the Radiant Raptor for $9.99 under $1,000 than we do any other small refractor or refractor at all. And people are people are blowing my mind with this little telescope. You know, it's the size of a can of tennis balls. And people are mm-hmm. taking these A-pod quality images with this thing. Because, you know, and these are people that have, a lot of them have big telescopes, but they're just opting for the portability. It's like, you can get a lot of telescope now for not a lot of money and in a really small package that makes it usable. It doesn't have to be like it was, you know, 15 years ago where, oh, you want a telescope, it's going to do good work. 
it's going to be the size of a school bus, you know, it's going to be very <laughs> expensive, but you know, you know, now yeah, it's, uh, that, it's affordable. That, that's true. Especially if you do, um, if you have a dark sky or if you do narrow band imaging and you get yourself to be good at post-processing, you can get really good mm -hmm. results, even with small telescopes like that one. Do you have time to, to do that yourself now? Do you do a lot of imaging now, or is it mostly taken up with, you know, keeping the website going? No, yeah, my last image was from 2015. So yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's taken all, it, it takes all of my time, definitely. I mean, um, I still have a day job, but even though, I mean, breaking news might not be the case anymore because very soon I'm thinking about going full time. Yeah. And um, so that would help. And um, I've got small children, so as well. And well, it can't be a small task. It's a it's a substantial website. And now with a lot of traffic, um, do you so do you have a lot of like customer issues that you see with it that you're constantly fielding? Or is it mostly just development, the new features, the new expansion or the, the growth of the company as a whole? Which one's taking your time? So um, I think I split my time. Um, I would say that I get about 15 or 20 emails a day well, with customer support. And uh, I would say that half of them I can reply right away with a quick macro, which is because it's probably something from the FAQ or something that I've seen a hundred times and I know how to reply to that. Uh, obviously, I mean, uh, the website is not perfect, right? I mean, everything has like disability issues. So if I get the same questions like two or three times, how do you do that? It means that there's a usability issue that people can't find that feature or how to do that thing. Um, I'm, I am quite a UX uh, minded person. So uh, UX stands for user experience. Um, and I also use tools to figure out uh, how to uh, how to tune the website to move things the right way so that people can find them. Um, so I get about 10 to 15 emails like that every day. Uh, a couple of emails might be something that I need to take an action about, maybe do some investigation, maybe something went wrong and mm -hmm. so on. Um, I would say that's um, that's actually pretty good. Uh, that's pretty low uh, because uh, Astrobin gets 10,000 unique visitors every day. And if I get 10 e emails per day, it's, uh, it means that like one person in a thousand had something to say on that day. So that's not too bad. Um, the rest of the time, no, yeah, most, that's pretty good. Yeah. It's uh, development is the, really the bulk of my time because I'm, I mean, I'm an engineer, right? And uh, that's what I like to do, actually. So um, I also like try to invest as much as possible of my time into implementing features that are um, astronomy related rather than uh, business related, right? I have to do business related features like um, subscription payment methods, these kind of things. Like I'm about to introduce um, Alipay payment method for visitors from China. Um, so this is, I categorize that as a uh, business kind of uh, technical work, but my favorite is of course the um, astronomy related features, technical work. Uh, the things that taking, that's taking me busy right now is the um, uh, reorganization of the equipment database uh, because uh, it needs to be cleaned up a bit. Uh, there's like um, some duplicates. People have been inserting things under different names or different spellings and so on. Um, and I would like really to consolidate mm -hmm. that in order to provide even better searches. Like um, I want you to be able to search uh, for modified versus unmodified uh, DSLRs or to search by pixel size of the CCD and so on. That wasn't That wasn't my team pushing you into that, was it? I know my team is very, no. <laughs> very much all about polishing the databases. <laughs> that, that, was okay, the, that was the plan actually last year. I, I wanted to do this last year, but yeah. things happened and I couldn't. So, but I'm getting on it this year. Okay, good, good. Yeah. It's, um, and, and so, yeah, you, you have to do the things you have to do so that you can get to the things you want to do. So I understand well having to put the time into, you know, like, like you said, for instance, right now you're doing the Alipay, um, and that stuff isn't for an astronomer. That's not the fun part. But if you do those things and you do them well, it affords the time to be able to put in the new astronomy features and the things that are actually part of the vision, right? 
Yeah, I guess that's what you know makes it a business, like any business. So I'm hearing about Astro Bin for the first time. Actually, I looked it up when I first heard about Salvatore was going to be on our podcast, and so I was learning about it. And it reminded me of a couple of things that I saw from the professional realm. Uh, but what I wanted, it seems to me, from what I can gather from both your conversation and from what I've seen on the web, is that the website is primarily equipment um, organized, right? You can do searches for, say, this kind of camera. Give me all the images that this kind of camera can take. Um, and you've sort of been organized into groups that that all of these different uh, equipment handlers, uh, you know, have that they that they have and put it on there. Can you do searches for say M eighty three? I want to see what cameras out there uh, have been taking M eighty three. Can you do that? Yeah, you can do that. I mean, everything is searchable on Astrobin. You can do searches by the subject. And the subjects like the deep sky things, they get annotated automatically um, with um, astrometry and plate solving. So you don't even have to tag them manually. They get recognized automatically and then put into the database so you can search for them. So, so when someone uploads images, they the, the, the software that on your website does all of that. Yeah. It, it does the astrometry and finds what objects are in there and everything else? Yes, not directly. It uses an API, but it's a project called astrometry.net, which is backed by right. um, the, the National Science Administration as well. Uh, so, But yes, the, the end result and, is that uh, you, you see the objects tagged and annotated. And I get that you want to save all the metadata, which is awesome because that's what the FITS format was all about. It was these, it was this idea of keeping a header data unit together so that you could have the metadata associated with whatever the, it was in the image. Do, do you accept FITS files uh, as uploads or what, are, what, what file images do, can you upload? So Astrobin is primarily for the finished image. So your finished product that comes from stacking all your FITS files together to increase your signal to noise ratio, and then you post-process it in PixInsight or in Photoshop or elsewhere, and then you produce uh, mm -hmm. your processing of the image. And that's what Astrobin is primarily for. Um, you can uh, you can associate um, a like a, an uncompressed data source for your own record, it's set to private, so nobody can get it, but you can store it on Astrobin for like for safekeeping if you want. So would that be like JPEGs or TIFFs or what what, what would the image format be and as the final product? The final product would be JPEGs or PNGs or PNG or GIFs or uh, TIFFs okay. as well. Okay, well, the reason I'm asking these, these questions is that it reminds me a lot of professional uh, virtual observatories and data centers, right? When you go to, say, MAST, the archive that houses all of the Hubble Space Telescope data, you go there and you say, I want, I'm studying M51, and I want to, and, and you, and you type that search in to the, to the archive and out comes all of the images Hubble ever took and whatever instruments and whatever cameras and whatever wavelengths uh, of M51. And you can narrow your search down to what you're really after, and then you can push a button and it'll give you all your data. This sounds like you're on the cusp of something very similar uh, where I could look at the Ring Nebula, for example, as taken by all of the amateurs that have uploaded onto your website uh, and see the various kinds of work that can be done with the Ring Nebula with, say, this camera and that camera or this telescope versus that telescope combination and, and things like that. Am I right? You could, you could, that's what this is very helpful at doing is understanding not just the equipment, but what the equipment will do to a given object in space. Yeah, I'll answer right? this in two parts. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So first of all, you can just type in M27, which I think is the Ring Nebula, or that's the Dumbbell Nebula. 50, um, 57. 57 is, is M57. the Ring Nebula, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So you can type that, and you're probably going to get thousands of images because it's, it's a very popular target, right? Um, that's right. Because you mentioned professional uh, tools, that brings me to a different topic, which is uh, sort of part of the vision that I had, but it didn't really come to fruition yet. But I'm hoping that someday I can push for that. What I would like, um, I think that there's a lot of scientific value in, in the outputs of the global community. Of That's where I was going with this. Yeah. Right? I agree. Yes. Yeah, I, I figured. Yep, yeah. yep. I think there's value in there. Um, 
I mean, I think the reason why astrophotography appeals to some people and to me as well uh, is that it's like sort of, it sits at the union of science, technology, and art, right? You, you do the pretty pictures, but you're doing something that has to do with science. And it's an engineering kind of task because you kind of geek out on the on the equipment and it's got so many moving parts and so many hardware and software pieces that you can, you know, you can go on forever, right? So it sits at this intersection and it appears to that kind of people. But it's not just the pretty pictures. Even though on AstroBeat right now, you basically get the pretty pictures and just that. I mean, there's a very there's some scientific research being um, shared on Astrobin. I mean, there's some guys that um, um, uh, continuously discover planetary nebulas. Uh, I think the name is Marcel Marcel something. I'm sorry, Marcel. I, I forgot your last name. So there's a lot of these things also being uh, done, but mostly 99% is the pretty pictures. But and now I get to the point. Every pretty picture is done by assembling together lots of subframes, right? So you might get 50 or 100 of them, and then you stack them together to get the pretty picture. But if one of those subframes had some like linear, non-stretched data that is of scientific relevance, for instance, you could have um, near-Earth objects in your frame and you wouldn't even know, right? You could have uh, measurements for uh, for variable stars. You could have supernovas in there and you wouldn't know because when you average your images together to do the stacking, the software has to increase the signal to noise ratio. And to do that, it adds the images together. So they get sort of averaged to remove the noise and if you have a supernova or something, it, it might get lost, so you don't have it in your final image, but it could be in one of your subs. Okay, so I'm thinking That's right. That's that right. If, if if there was if there was enough power, enough resources on Astrobin to tackle this, and the community would be was interested, and I think that they would be, and Astrobin could host all these images, all these subs, the original frames before you stack them, and then there could be a routine, there could be software. Uh, artificial intelligence software, machine learning software that goes through these images, these subs, and detects anomalies to be then maybe uh, analyzed later. There could be something there that could be of value uh, to the to the scientific community. Oh, oh, absolutely, and and you could you don't have to go quite that far. You could maybe compromise a little bit and just make the data available in some format, maybe already stacked, and then you could do a search by RA and deck and time, right? You say what was up in the sky. I want to see all the data that Astrobin has on this square of the sky at this time because I think there's something going through there. Imagine the discoveries that could be made and the data that would just because people are looking at the night sky all the time at different times of the of the time of the year right, and with yeah. different wavelengths it would be amazing it would yeah. just be so great so you can do that already you can search by uh, coordinates like celestial coordinates but time is a bit a, a bit of a different issue because what is the time when you have an image that you have acquired over multiple nights then there's no exact time anymore that that image pertains to I get your point. Yeah, if, especially if it's like a multi-hour image or something like that, perhaps. You know, but but, yeah. but you're pretty deep down this path for for the science, you know, um, interest here. But even at the the very top level, just general education, if you yeah. think about, we know of this supernova that happened in M fifty one, and it happened on this date. You could go. I mean, imagine a teacher then showing a class an image from a year before that date of M fifty one. Then same orientation a year after that date or right after that resource. date. And then saying, what's different in these two and why? And it's like, you can tell these are both real images of a galaxy far, far away, right? <laughs> it would <laughs> be a great resource. For educational purposes, how powerful is that? And you have the database right now and people have access to that information right now. And I don't know, it could be being used that way by some some professors or some teachers, but if it's not, I mean, what an educational miss, because that is powerful in explaining how we are in an evolving universe and we can prove it to each other right now with something that's here and available. Yeah. And we live in a world where a lot of people have never seen the Milky Way, right? 
growing up in, in large cities. And if you if you show people that you know what you can achieve with telescopes, you know you can see these galaxies, and these are real. They're not Hubble Space Telescopes. These are people who have achieved these images from their homes with inexpensive equipment. It blows people's minds. You know, it's something yeah. that you know even if you're not showing supernovas or anything like that, but just show what's what's achievable and what's out there. It could be like uh, something that has a very um, educa- very big educa- educational impact. It's powerful. That's, it excites me. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that, I think that's an amazing thing to be able to do. Yeah, it's powerful. And, and the other the other side of it is that it only goes up from here. Like your your site's only going to get better. Your databases are only going to get better. You're clearly talking about putting more into it, not less. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's extremely powerful to everyone. I love the th- the thing I love the most about it and and honestly our conversation. I usually don't I usually don't bring conversations into, you know, the podcast and things we make public, especially when they're not. But this part I think is is really valuable is that when we first spoke, the only thing that you kept bringing up was and I love this because it's like the thing I hear at OPT every day is just making things you know, uh, empowering people to explore and then share, right? Both of those things were right at the core of what you're doing. And you could tell that it's like, that's, that's the point of this. And it'd be hard to look at Astro Ben and say, oh yeah, he just, he just did it for the money or he just did it. <laughs> it's like, no, this is a passion that, project. That would it's have very been a obvious. poor choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and so I just like, I really like that. That's what this project's about, but it does exactly that. Like people are able to share this passion with each other and learn from each other. So it becomes very educational, even just by happy accident. Yeah. And just to bring some context, we're not talking about sharing images, like sharing what you acquired and so on. We're talking about sharing information. So sharing Mm -hmm. what is possible with your equipment, because like, the selfish choice is to not publish the information, but people don't do that. Most people, they publish everything that they can. One, for the personal records, right? They want to keep the record up for themselves and also to share with the others and not just publish an image and say, hey, here it is. I did that. Good job. But people share the yeah. information and people share um, on the forums a lot. That There's a lot of... Um, uh, helping each other's it's a very very helpful community and i get that all the time from a lot of people how welcoming and there's no gatekeeping such a good community mm-hmm. and i observe that and it just i find it mesmerizing it is it's a very cooperative instead of competitive community and i think that's that's awesome because it's not far removed from photography and photography has somehow in, in most forums tipped the other way. I've seen it's very competitive. People don't want to share their secrets. They don't want to, you know, it gets very, you know, I'm better at this than you are with astrophotography. Maybe it's just because everybody's in that challenge together and the challenge itself is brutal, brutal enough to be unifying. <laughs> but it's one of those things that people feel like, yeah, here's, here's what I did right here. And I can help you do this if this is something you're interested in. And I think that's, really um it's really quite an an amazing thing that you know it's how most people achieve success is by leaning on someone else that's already done it yeah well i just want i just want to bring up a a subject that i've i've been thinking a lot more about uh with respect to this and that is that one of the things that dustin and i talk about a lot on the podcast is the future of the hobby and and one of the things that i think is the future of the hobby or at least it's an un untapped potential of the hobby is the part that uses data, the part that uses the images themselves for whatever reason. And I think that's a part of the hobby that's going to explode. And while I know Astrobin has a very heavy equipment component to it, this is what this camera can do on this object. I want to, I'm thinking of buying this camera or this telescope. What can it show me image wise? And it's great, or it's a great resource to help you see what it can do, decide what kind of equipment you want to buy for yourself. But there's also a component to this hobby where you don't need anything. You don't need a telescope. You don't need a filter. You don't need a camera. You just need to know how to process data, maybe some software. And 
you can get some very gratifying results. I have people on my Discord server posting images that they've downloaded after they've processed them from these data archives like MAST or, or PanStars or whatever the, whatever the commercial databases or the scientific databases are, and they are processing the data themselves, making gorgeous pictures using space telescope data. And I think the amateur hobby you're on the cusp of this already, uh, we'll be able to provide data that allows people to just mash, do a mashup of somebody else's work maybe, or take a, take a couple of images and make some art out of it. Um, and that's a component to what you're doing that I think is, uh, is possible at, if depending on the, I don't know the details of the licensing or, or, you know, when people post on your site, is it copyrighted, all of that stuff, but all of that, notwithstanding, it's still something that people can gain access to without owning a single piece of equipment. And that's that access mm -hmm. part that you guys were talking about. It's really cool. I mean, yeah. I, I just think that, I just think the data part of it, the data part of the hobby is got a lot of potential to it. <laughs> Let me talk a little bit about that. So, um, Regarding, you mentioned copyright and image ownership. Um, images on AstroBin, their owners, uh, they are property of their respective owners. AstroBin doesn't get any property out of it. Um, might share it on uh, on Facebook or Instagram for community building purposes, right? But image is yours. You can specify a license when you upload to AstroBin. Uh, a lot of people upload with um, like share friendly licenses. Uh, but there's also like full copyright license. Um, then you so you can about, decide to what you extent can decide. you want. You, okay, yes. you can decide what okay. you know what people can do with your images. And sometimes I get people contacting me. Hey, and you know I'm writing a book, uh, or uh, I'm I'm writing a musical album, and I would like to have this image on the cover. Can I get it? And I just say you know contact the owner using the private messages feature. And uh, so that's it. Mm -hmm. Uh, now then, yeah, uh, you, yeah. you talked about data, just data, you know, like um, uh, moving on from ownership of equipment and just talking about pure data. And this is something that happens a lot um, with a lot of the companies that also Astrobin works with. Uh, they um, offer some free data downloads or you can purchase data for, for post-processing. And people do this a lot, especially if you live... In a, in a country that has uh, poor weather, like, you know, lots of cloudy nights or it's too cold or for some right. other reason, yeah. Yeah, if you yeah. have a physical disability and you can't, like, you know, travel with your telescope and so on, people do this all the time. And it's um, it doesn't have to be expensive, right? So um, lots of things can be shared, like this data is shared, right? And because, at least in my opinion, now, now we're going to get in a pretty device, uh, divided uh, topic but in my opinion um the post-processing is where you can make a lot of the difference at least for myself when i was having my own equipment at home um i found the setting up and tearing down uh after a while it got dull for me personally um but that's just the way i am uh for a lot of people it's um they romanticize this understandably because it's it's got this kind of routine sort of um, um, <laughs> connotation to it. So uh, people romanticize it. And I understand that, especially if you're traveling with your telescope, it's like it's your you know, getaway. Um, but for those who don't. Yeah, there's nothing like, like traveling with an 80 pound telescope to just feel <laughs> yeah. connected to, right? You're just like, boy, I love this thing, man. Because yeah. if I didn't love it, I'd be blowing it up right now. <laughs> I love this. This is great. Uh, continue. I'm just but, but for me, for me, as a as an equipment geek and um, this kind of person who, after a while, it got dull, and I didn't find it interesting to polar align anymore because, by the way, the software could do it for me, and I didn't really have to do anything. So for me, the real challenge was in the post processing because that's where you can right. botch the picture. You can ruin it. You know, you can ruin it by having a bad focus, just as like as you can ruin it by having a poor post processing. So that's the challenge for me, and uh, you see that because if you see the same data uh, and you give it to different people, each with a different style, with their different workflows, they get they can get totally different results. So this that's, happens that's all the time. That's exactly right. That's why I was asking about the 
about the FITS data, if you make the FITS data available with their with the corresponding uh, calibration images, yeah, man, people can just go nuts with it if they wanted to, and enjoy the benefit of of uh, not you know not having the the equipment needed to take all that stuff because yes, it is hard. Uh, yeah, and I will revisit revisit this in the future because Astrobin actually used to offer this. Uh, the storage of your FITS data, and then you could have you could share them into these public data pools that people could download, and then they could submit their own rendition of the image to the public data pools. But uh, after a while, I had to remove it due because the, um, I couldn't af- offer it at a competitive price because of the storing. But uh, I'm gonna have to revisit that in the future because for me, that's also something mm-hmm. that that isn't my vision, and my vision is allowing people access and people allow allowing people to share these kind of things yeah and you know when you're talking about access in the very beginning of the podcast may have even been the first thing you were talking about when you were telling your story you said you would carry your telescope up to the roof and um you were in light polluted skies and fortunately you found jupiter and jupiter was a hook it was a hook for you and um you know i have a i have a similar story uh in nashville Looking through a telescope, I was much older. I was already in my late twenties at the time. But looking through a telescope, it's so light polluted that really I only had a couple of objects. If you have no education, which I didn't in astronomy, you don't know what you're looking at. I agree with you. Like the Orion Nebula, even though now when I look at it, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. But that only came with a little of it, little a uh, little education of what I was actually seeing, because otherwise you described it as kind of like a blur or like a smudge, smudge and yeah. yeah, and and it does. It's what it looks like if you're in a light polluted sky and you can't really get a powerful image on it. Um, you know, it's just kind of a smudge in the sky. Now, if I see that smudge, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a nebula! I, like new stars are being born. This thing is incredible. But when you're brand new to it, it almost looks like, is something wrong with my, my glass? Is like, what, mm-hmm. what am I seeing? It's just a smudge. I don't, I don't get it. So the only real hooks in the sky when you're brand new for most people are going to be Saturn, Jupiter, and the moon. If you're in light polluted skies, those are the only things really bright enough. Fortunately, the moon, it just absolutely blew me away. And then I had this moment with Jupiter where I could see the shadow of one of the moons crossing over the planet. And that was where I just, you know, I like dropped my phone on the ground. I'm just like, oh my God, what did I just see? Yeah, like this should be- You see like, you know, that's real. You, when you see the yeah. shadow there, you see this is real. This is right now. But those are the only three targets that there's nothing smudgy about them. They're not just, you know, stars that are like pinpoints on, you know, a black background. These like Jupiter looks like Jupiter and Saturn has rings and the moon. You see these craters very clearly. And when I saw that shadow going across Jupiter from my front yard, it's just everything else in my life was just like, okay, all right, I got to start over now. What like what did I just see? And this is all I'm doing now. This is it. Don't forget Mars. Yeah. Mars also has some, okay, you see the little red round, red uh-huh. circle, but you, you go like, you know, it's Mars, and Mars has a right. cultural annotation, you know, connotation, it, it's Mars, right? It's our neighbor planet, and we're going to get there. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not like you see so Uranus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, even more so after yesterday. I just, you know, we, we just, um, we just recorded with Don Pettit, astronaut for NASA. Um, the, the guy is absolutely incredible. And just listening to these people talk, one of the things that we mentioned in that podcast was that everything that's done by NASA just comes with a capital W for the we built in because it's like, this isn't for NASA. This isn't for the United States. Like This is humanity landing on Mars. This is humanity landing on the moon. And it's like the, the bigger we. And so yesterday when I watched that, like I just had chills all day long from seeing those images of the surface of Mars coming from this impossible task of this thing being lowered down to the surface of another planet. And then just the technology involved. It's hard for me to upload my images to the Internet on basic on Instagram. They shot images back from Mars the same day. <laughs> yes. 
man this is as we as it gets that's after being lowered down on a sky crane which was after being plummeted through the atmosphere on the telescope or with the parachutes yeah Yeah, and they're talking about when it when it started slowing down they're like oh yeah it's only moving you know five kilometers a second this thing's moving three miles in a a second and you're gonna land it on something (laughs) you know five minutes from now Uh, it decelerated so fast the deceleration yeah. was so it's fast. Just, it's unbelievable. And it nothing broke. It's fine. And it's sending back images 30 minutes later. Well, it's I'm just, just waiting for the helicopter, man. The helicopter is what's got me jazzed about this thing. They're going to fly a yeah. freaking helicopter on Mars. I mean, that. Okay. All right. But yeah, the, 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 we, the, the we factor, you're absolutely on point on that. And I realized that when I see people in my circles, in, in my social media, I see people who have never shown any interest in space, you know, never shared anything. But these people, they're sharing, like, you know, perseverance is on Mars. So you understand how, you know, the, the, there's so much of this cultural influence by something mm-hmm. like that that unites everybody and it affects everybody and everybody gets excited, not just us space nerds or people who are into astronomy. People who are not, they also get excited about these things, which is, you know, absolutely amazing and so promising, so promising. It is. It's the future. Everybody knows this is where we are going. We have to go there. Like we're going up and this is, this is, um, it's, it's more obvious now than I think it would have ever been to living generations kind of on the crest of, you know, rapid evolution. We at least get to know it's happening. People didn't know when we, they first started crossing the oceans how drastic the world was about to change. Like it was about to change forever. But the people most people wouldn't have known that. But now, mm-hmm. especially because information moves so freely and so quickly, we all know every time one of these things lands on another planet, we're not seeing that day. We are seeing the future coming at us fast very, very quickly. And it's the most exciting thing in the world. Anybody that's missing out on this experience, I feel like they're missing the greatest moments in human history happening right now. Yeah, and we- so after, uh, after Mars, the other thing that could blow your mind, even if it's a smudge in your telescope, is a galaxy. Even just looking at mm-hmm. M31, the Andromeda galaxy, okay, you see a smudge, but you have the knowledge that that smudge is a whole galaxy with two, three, Uh four hundred million stars in it. Sorry, million, billion stars in it. And Mm. so that's also that the super mind blown. Yeah, and and the thing about Andromeda is that it's also a very misleading object in the eyepiece, right? When you look at it, even even when you take an image of it with with a camera, you look at it and it's got, you see the bright core of the galaxy and it's just a smudge, right, through an eyepiece. And, but when you, but then you need to realize you're just looking at the core of that galaxy. The ent- the actual galaxy is six degrees across the sky. And, yeah. you know, you're just looking at such a tiny, tiny part. And you go, well, what's six degrees? Well, hold your thumb up, up into the sky at arm's length. That's a half a degree, right? So, so 12 of those thumbs across the sky is the Andromeda galaxy. And so mm-hmm. it's really crazy uh, to think about. And, I like to always throw that little tidbit in after people have looked at just the bright core of it. And then, of course, my personal favorite is M57, or M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, yeah. just because it's so... Through a big telescope, it it's a life-changing moment. And also, M51 is one of the few galaxies that you can see, especially... So I don't know if you know this, uh, Sal, but, but Tony has a gigantic telescope. It's, it's like seven feet tall, and it's a half-meter Dobsonian. And uh, so if you look at M51 through that, it's basically like you're there. Yeah, yeah. You know, but (laughs) that one is It really is. It's a very bright image. And and even reasonably, you know, I guess Bortle, what, five skies, I guess I have here on a good night. Uh, It's very, it's very, uh, it's very bright. And and I get, yeah, I know that I'm a little bit spoiled in that respect, but it's also really good even in the smaller aperture scopes. Um, But you're right. The idea that you're looking at something several million, Light years what is away. That, 28 million light years away. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Like, but like at sounds about 100 and, what's the speed of light? 186,000 miles a second or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, um, yeah, it's 186,000 miles a second and it has to travel for 28 million years at that speed to get here. And you're <laughs> yeah. looking at it in your backyard 
and yeah. seeing and seeing spiral arms in real time like yeah yeah that is both fascinating and you know like for me life-changing but also terrifying at the same <laughs> moment just how gigantic the universe actually is yeah, yeah I, much- I have I have photon guilt all the time. You know what photon guilt is? <laughs> photon it's this guilt. I, is if photon guilt is when you know that these photons have just done this journey, right? Of yeah. some bajillion yeah. years long. And it's and ended his life on your retina. And yeah. you're like, oh, dude, I'm really sorry that that happened. Yeah. But thank you for me. I'm really happy I saw oh, these photons. Man. I wish so I, I could talk to him just yeah. an hour before they get here. I wish I could talk to him and be like, don't waste <laughs> yourself on Tony. <laughs> Don't go there, man. Find it's somebody just, other than he's Tony. Old. His retina might yeah. not even see it now. You <laughs> might just be wasted. Wouldn't that be a waste? What a you travel waste. all this way and the retina doesn't even register it. I mean, that's, yeah. that would just be bad, right? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, man. or you don't know how the eyepiece works and it just hits you in the side of the face. <laughs> <laughs> Million you imagine journey? that? I'm just trying to vis- visualize that at the eyepiece of a telescope, and then someone yeah. watching me. What's up, man? Is I, yeah, is, is yeah I know. It, it almost makes you want to get mad at the people trying to use your telescope, and then they're like, <laughs> they don't know how to focus, and they're like, I can't see it. It's like, you don't get another turn. That's right. You're that was, wasting the photons. Do you realize what they've done? That was a 28 million year journey, <laughs> and, and you're sitting here going, I can't focus. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, photon guilt. It's a thing. I'm in I guess it is now. If it wasn't before this, it certainly is now. Oh, man. But you know what, though? Like, you made it through the filter, Sal. And so, so did I, and so did Tony. But I don't think everyone does because light pollution, it's a very real problem. And you had to, you know, you had to find the right target at the right time on the clear night. And a lot of people get the telescope and they go out for a few nights and maybe it's cloudy or for a few nights and they don't know what to look at, or they don't know how to use the telescope and not everybody makes it through the filter. And I think that, you know, sites like Astrobin, a lot of the efforts, I can tell you just about everything that we're doing as a company is trying to eliminate that filter as well. Um, and then of course this podcast, that's the whole point of it is, is getting rid of that filter for everyone we can. But I do worry about it. I worry that, you know, we are more rare than we should be of people that found this thing and allowed it to really, you know, set in what we're seeing and be blown away by it. Because I don't know anybody that if they have the opportunity, wouldn't be right there with us, just absolutely amazed and their lives being better having seen this stuff. Yeah, I believe people have the sensitivity to appreciate these kind of things, to, to have their mind blown by looking at these things through a telescope. So yeah, the the filter is real. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And uh, I mean, Tony, you've spent, man, you've spent uh, a huge portion of your adult life educating people. How many times have you heard that, you know, people do run into those problems? Oh man, I just didn't know. Like I can see that. I, I live in Raleigh, or I live, you know, in San Antonio. It's all I see is light pollution. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't even see the stars. Like how many? People oh, it's are facing it's that it's freaking tragic, man. I mean, it's like you know, I I hate that. It's like what? Do, how do you go through life not ever seeing a fully dark sky? I mean, it's like the only way that I hear it done now is by accident, right? They're driving to Las Vegas or something on I-15 and they, I don't know, they get out to go to the bathroom or something and they, they just happen to look up and then they're just, you know, it takes their breath away. They say, wow, look at that sky. And then Mm. they just stand there and you're like, come on, we got to go. And, and, you know, they just, I, they've never seen anything like it to me. It's tragic. I mean, the, the number of people that have never seen the Milky way, I think it's just, it should be illegal. Um, yeah. it, it just, you know, I don't, I don't, it's a real soapbox for me to, to see how much our night sky, which is a natural resource for all of us, just gets stolen by, by people who aren't, don't even ask. They just build a car dealership, point all of their lights straight up into the sky where no one's going to be looking. Uh, and, and they need, they need to have daylight conditions at mm-hmm. one in the morning on their cars. I don't, I just don't get it. So and I read I, somewhere, I've read somewhere that there was once a huge blackout in New York City or something, and people were yes. calling 911 saying, Hey, there's weird clouds in the sky. What is this? And it was exactly. the Milky Way. 
I remember hey. that. It was a summer where they had a blackout, a huge blackout, and, the, and people were like, whoa, what is that? I know, it's it's freaking ridiculous. Yeah, but you can't make fun of those people because, like you just said, nobody's seen it unless it was an accident. No, no, you I'm know, not making people. fun of them. Yeah. I just think it's a it's it's, it's tragic that they had never seen yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> and then once you do see it, you just can't unsee it, you know? It's like, how do you get back in the car and continue the conversation about Vegas? You're just like, guys, I just... I just witnessed. Yeah, I don't everything. know, man. I was like, I think I'm going to take this money I'm about to lose at Caesar's yeah. Palace, and I'm going I'm to yeah. go buy a 10 inch dob, right? I mean, it's like, you'd be like, yes, now you're making good decisions. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's a, do you have, do you have dark skies near you, Sal? Uh, no, not really. Not too dark. I mean, I'm not in a city center. I'm kind of like in the suburbs. Okay. So, yeah. There's no place in Florida that has decent skies, except if, out of the water on a boat yeah then you makes it a little more challenging to stabilize your mount though yeah you're not going to pull her a line <laughs> swinging <laughs> on anchor there it's like yeah <laughs> yeah it's um we feel very fortunate here i mean we have we have really terrible light pollution i'm i'm right between san diego and los angeles so i'm getting hit from both sides with pretty severe light pollution but fortunately you know just because of the way california is we have mountains just east of both major cities and the clouds come in and they completely block off the light from the major cities. And so anything on those mountains or past is just dark, you know, cause the nice. clouds roll in off the ocean all the time and then it just covers the cities and everything just, you can tell the cloudy nights, everything just goes completely dark to the point where 10 minutes away from where I live, you go outside and it's just like, the Milky Way is just completely obvious going overhead, you know. So it's we're really, really fortunate out here that we we get dark skies. Um, but and the dry I do air feel helps a lot too out there. Yeah, I do feel for people that never get the chance, and and we always encourage people on this podcast. Like if you're hearing it, you haven't seen it, take a road trip. I promise you, there's zero percent chance if you get under dark skies, you're going to regret it. Um, go, go see it and let it be everything, every, all of the excitement that you hear us talking with, it's like, you'll have that. You'll, you'll be that, but go outside and see it. I love how you always say that. So it's like, you know, you never hear anybody looking through an eyepiece or looking at an image and go and just go, you know, nah, that's all right. (laughs) They just, you know, you you never meet anybody who just goes, eh. Well, wasted that time. Yeah. Well, there's some, there's five seconds of my life. I won't get back. Thank you. Zero people have ever said that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, getting back to Astro Bin. So uh, tell us, can you give us walk through just a little bit about how a person who's never seen your website before can interact with it? What do you recommend people do when they go to astrobin.com? Do they make a need to make an account? Can they do things without an account? Um, you know, what's it like to be on Astrobin for someone who's never been there before? And what do you recommend they do? So if you're out there just to browse and look at what, you know, what the amazing pictures are that people post you can do it for free without an account. You can just browse anonymously, uh, no need for an account. You can do basic searches without an account and it's just fine. Obviously, if you want to participate to, to the social aspects of the website, if you want to comment, if you want to like, if you want to post on the forums and so on, you're going to need an account because and otherwise everything is anonymous and it just kind of loses meaning. Um, then you need an account. If you want to start sharing your images, uh, you can do it for free up to 10 uploads. It's sort of like a trial um, period that's quite generous because if you're just starting out, I I get people who start an account on the free account and then there's 10 uploads and it takes them a year and a half to do the 10 uploads because maybe they go out once a month on a new moon to take the pictures. after that, it's uh, there's the premium membership accounts that lets you um, get access to all the advanced features like the advanced search, all the place solving um, abilities for the automatic recognition of, of the objects and so on. Awesome. Great. Well, that's a great resource you've got going. I can't wait to learn more about it. I'm going to create my account here very nice. soon and uh, play around with it yeah it looks like you've got like i said it reminds me a lot of an amateur version of a national of a virtual observatory that's what they call it in 
professional realm. They just say these are virtual observatories. And it sounds a lot like that. So I'm very excited that you've started it. Okay. Well, I think that's we've covered our hour. And I want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us about AstroBen, a great project, which if you are starting out in astronomy, or even if you've been around for a while and you want to learn what other people are doing with equipment that you think you might want to get, then I think you need to go here and check out what's, what other people are doing with your future stuff. <laughs> so, uh, Salvatore, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. I, I, I think this is a great idea. And uh, so I wish you all the best in the future with it. And on behalf of Dustin Kibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>